for some reason, uh, people don't understand uh, math and they don't understand how a free market system works and they don't understand that there's nothing for free. And hey there, freedom lovers. This is another episode and welcome of the Freedom Media Network. I am your very grateful host, Kurt Mercadante. I am grateful that you are here spending even a a little sliver of your life with me today. And I'm grateful for our wonderful guest today, Pete Primo. Now, Pete, for almost four decades, and I joked, I said, man, you started in this industry when you were just like one years old. He's worked in the furniture and mattress industry. He's president of Primo Furniture Sales. He helps furniture and mattress retailers succeed. Today, I'd like to talk about, you know, just like any retailer, um, although in our discussions, there are some interesting things that are happening in the furniture industry. Um, every retailer was smacked in the face, just like every other retailer uh, during the COVID in the last two years. And now they're getting a double whammy. They're getting a punch to the gut in the form of, well, not only inflation, but supply chain issues. And, yeah. and Pete's told me about the the massive 50, 60, 70% price increases that have hit the furniture industry over the last couple of years. So like any other industry, uh, it has not been free of its challenges. Uh, yeah. But there's some lessons today that that we all can learn for how to deal with these things. And, and we're going to talk to Pete about how he counsels some of those retailers to deal with these challenges. By the way, Pete is also author of a wonderful book, Sell a Million Hundred One Tips, for furniture and mattress store owners. So happens I have a copy too. Well, there you go. I don't know where you got yours, but <laughs> to sell another million dollars or more. And, and this book is wonderful. I mean, really what it is, it's literally just 101 tips. These are growth tips that anyone can use. Some of them are specific to the mattress and furniture uh, industry, but I don't care if you're a coach, if you sell golf balls, what the heck you do, pick up this book. It is full of wisdom. And there are growth tips that if you enact today, Get off the couch, get off your ass, start enacting some of these, you will grow. That was a long intro. Pete, welcome to the Freedom Media Network. Thanks for having me. I'm thankful to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, now I did promise you or threaten that at some point, because I know you got the uh, the uh, the Sears statue in the back of you there, but yeah, I want to talk about your powerlifting days. But let, let's first talk about... Um, I, I jokingly said that you started in this industry when you were one year old, <laughs> but 40 years ago, yeah. you started in this industry. Uh, I'd love to know, you know, I, I'm always fascinated. There's an industry, there are industries out there. Obviously I know the mattress and furniture industry because I, I sit on furniture and sleep on furniture, Sure, but there's always industries that you never thought of. There's industries that, um, you know, that, you know, how did you, how did you get involved in the mattress and furniture industry? Uh, married into it. Really? Yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> it was funny because played football in college for a little division three football, uh, football team and uh very good football team. As a matter of fact, as far as division three goes and, uh, my ambition obviously was to play pro football and, uh, my father-in-law said, you know, uh, you know, I could always teach you my business and then, you know, you could always move on and become a rep. And uh, I, I basically didn't really want to listen to him after, I think I got cut the third or fourth time. I 
I said, what about that furniture thing you were talking about? <laughs> so, so that's how that came to be. Um, and you know what? I was really lucky, Kurt, because I had a guy who was my mentor, George Cooley, God rest his soul, who was a rep who owned his own stores. And basically what I did is I worked five days a week in a store and I rode around two days a week in his car, visiting other stores. So I got an education as a retail salesman and I got an education on how to be a rep and the challenges. So when I went to become a rep, I already knew what it was. You know, there was no illusions about, you know, what it was, what, what you did, how you did it and all that, because I had been watching it for nine years. Hmm. What's the biggest over 40 years, the single biggest change you've seen in the industry? Wow. Hmm. Hard to point to just one. Mm. Uh, but the most recent thing that's still affecting us is, is, is COVID. Um, the, uh, stores actually being closed down and then coming back and, uh, having an unbelievable amount of business and then walking into the, uh, supply chain issues where we couldn't get merchandise quick enough and then price increase after price increase. You know, it wasn't just one 40 or 50% price increase. It was a bunch of little fives and sixes and sevens. And mm. the biggest one was eight. But right now, mattresses and furniture from two years ago, and it doesn't matter whose it is, or where you buy it, whether you buy it in a store, you buy it on Amazon, or you buy it uh, you know, your, your favorite bed-in-the-box place, it's 40, 45% to 55% more than it was. That's, wow. that's the reality. And, uh, you know, sadly, you get what you pay for. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's insane because... Some of the best-selling upholstery and case good groups are out uh, more than a year from now. Can't even get them. So it's what we're all dealing with. There are many stores right now that just put out what they have, sell off the floor, replenish with what they have, uh, and are not dependent on the supply chain anymore because the supply chain is, is fundamentally broke. And not so much with mattresses. It just... It's bent with mattresses and mattresses are still uh, taking longer than they should, but it's not like furniture. Furniture is still in, 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 a, in, a, in a tailspin. So it's, uh, it's interesting times uh, in the last two years. You know, everyone, the headlines are about inflation. Yeah. You know, oh, six, seven, eight percent. You know, I think a lot of people forget in the early 80s, you, you're, you saw what? 19% inflation, maybe even higher. Uh, yeah. And I remember when gas went, there were gas lines. Yeah. My father looked at me and he said, 33 cents a gallon. I, I don't know how you're going to make it, son. <laughs> and I'm like, 
Dad, if you could only see what's going on, but I think you got better things to do right now. So yeah, the $4 and what, you know, you're talking about 45, 50% increases. And I think you mentioned offline uh, a couple of weeks ago that some products are 60% or more. They could be certain products. Um, sure. Where's that coming from? Because, you know, the difference between 7, 8% inflation and 50% is huge. Mm. Where is that coming from? Um, you know, there was COVID, there was coming out. You mentioned it was 5, 6% here. Is it a breakdown? Is it just a breakdown in the international supply chain and, and global economics? Is it something else? Is it um, mixed with inflation? <laughs> Well, you, you've got it impacting at several different levels, Kurt. So let's just take the supply uh, from the manufacturer. So the, our, our, the manufacturers buy raw goods. Those raw goods have gone up. A lot of the reason those raw goods went up is because they're imported. Most of the covers, even for domestic brands, are imported. They're either imported uh, from Europe, Eastern Europe, China, uh, Canada from somewhere. The textile industry is not robust in the United States the way it used to be. It's all but dead. Uh, very little is being manufactured in the, in the United States when it comes to textiles. Um, everything from foam to non-wovens, you had the chemicals that make foam, you know, got frozen over two years ago and, and that caused, uh, you know, inflation uh, with foam specifically. Um, then you have this piling on effect that happens. The spring guys go, you know, we're not really making as much and the foam guys are getting more. And so we're going to get more. And then you got the guys that sell thread and they're going, well, you know, everyone else is getting more. We, we should get more too. But everybody's being affected by two other things. And that is the cost to ship anything, anywhere, and the reliability of employees. Something has fundamentally broken our society or people think it's optional to show up for work. Um, I, I, I don't know how that happened, where it happened. Uh, don't spend a lot of time on those things, but I, I can tell you something's fundamentally broke. Um, it's been happening for a long time, but it, it just... Um, you know, for, for, for some reason, uh, people don't understand uh, math and they don't understand how a free market system works and they don't understand that there's nothing for free. So you mentioned the free market and I'm a free market person. You're a free market person. And I don't know if you've ever seen the pamphlet. <clears throat> they made it, they've made a couple of different iterations of the movie, I Pencil, where they show how a pencil to explain global economics and the power of a free market, and they break down the different pieces of a pencil. The graphite comes from a mine in South, uh, South America, and the metal comes from something in Africa. And, this, and the paint comes from here, right? And it shows just in a single pencil the power of the free market and global economics. And it's something that I fundamentally believe in. However, with what's going on and what we've seen over the last couple of years, um, I guess, is it a breakdown of the free market? Is it the fact that we don't truly have a free market? Or is it we have a free market, but there are criminals 
You know, it's like if me, you, and three other guys decide to have a free market trading system, but one of them is a criminal declaring economic war, and that person's name is the Chinese Communist Party, right? Is it impossible to have a free market when you have criminals? And those um, who are in cahoots with that party. Yeah, yeah. Is it, is it a combo of all three? Is that what we're seeing here? Is it, is it a breakdown of the free market or is it a perversion of the free market or something in the middle? Well, you know that we don't have a completely free market. Um, I would love it if we did do away with a lot of the silliness that's going on. Um, I would say it's a perversion of the of the free market um we're not all the way there but it's going backwards it's going the wrong direction and it's going closer to uh to where i pray to god every american knows it shouldn't go hmm. interesting what so covid obviously was a was a you mentioned covid was the biggest you know in 40 years right yeah, yeah. it was the one thing you named i've noticed some industries though uh, there's been some creative destruction due to COVID, meaning COVID forced them to finally change, right? Um, mm -hmm. We're seeing that a little bit in the, um, uh, now there's some other pressures too, but in the auto industry, uh, now some of it's anecdotal, some of it is, hey, there's pressures from someone like Tesla or like a Carvana, where now I can just order and have my car delivered or I, I can shop and there's custom and, and those types of things. Whereas we just went to get a van and I always loathed the car buying process because you go in there, you go through the whole rigmarole, you go through the test drive, you go, right? And then, you, and then you're like, oh, great, we've settled on a number. Yeah. But then you have another four hours because they're going to they're gonna make you sit. They're going to go through all the paperwork. I don't think they're actually doing paperwork. They're just tiring you out. And then you go in there and then they start hitting you with dent and ding and warranties and this and that. And if you don't, you're going to die and all this, right? We went in and to lease a car. We did all the negotiations via email the week before. Went in and just picked up the van. Good. It was the, and it, they said it was because of COVID. People they couldn't have people just lingering anymore. It forced them to change. Are there any positive changes that you've seen in your industry due to the pressures of COVID? Yeah, but I'd like to address one thing. I had a, a dear friend of mine who was in car sales, and they actually did train. They actually do train, did in um, in the rearview mirror because it's not that way anymore. Um, they actually did train to to actually physically tire you out. Yeah. And the last few times I went to get a car, I, I said I, I would just say this: I'm here to buy a car. I'm not going to be here for an hour. I'm not going to be here for two hours. I don't care about you know, your general manager, blah, 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 <laughs> any of that. I just, I'm going to be in and out in a half an hour. And if I can't be in and out in a half an hour, let's not waste each other's time. And, and that's basically the way I start because I'm not, I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not playing your game. So that aside. Does it work? So, yes. Yeah. I, well, my, my wife, the first time, she she went shopping with me to get a car. Could 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 not believe what she was witnessing. She she said, uh, "I didn't know you could say that." And I said, "Yeah, you can." So anyway, 
That's funny. I, I wasn't trying to be rude. I just, I'm, I'm very busy. I don't have time to, to, to cock around with somebody who thinks that they should be wasting your time. And, uh, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of places to buy a car from. So I, I, I don't need to play your game. I'll find well, somebody who will do it straight. And today, think about how quickly we can buy just about anything. Yeah. That, that practice, I mean, COVID, maybe it's forcing it to change, but people aren't going to put up with that because they're used to just getting stuff on their phone in yeah. three seconds and it, and it arrives, whether that's Chipotle or a, now a car, Carvana, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. That's interesting. So our industry got very upside down with the um, with little retailers being extremely demanding um, about you know demanding the terms that the big guys were getting, and some of the stupid manufacturers actually went along with it and did it, and they should never have done it. They should have just said that's what a multi million dollar retailer gets and you're not going to get it. But uh, our industry was very upside down. And uh, a lot of the floor sample discounts, a lot of the subsidies uh, that there were before are gone now. Um, they're just gone. And the other thing that I would say that has changed that I think is really positive for retailers is retailers were, were just beating themselves being open, you know, every Sunday, uh, being open till nine o'clock at night. Most of them, you know, went down to being open at six when they first reopened and a lot of them have stayed there. Mm -hmm. So reducing the hours and giving the employees a better place to work, I think is one of the things that came out of COVID that was very positive. Um, I think it's positive for, for everybody in the industry. I think it's positive. Um, you know, when, I, when I'm a rep and I'm overnight, I'm going to be in a store that's open till nine o'clock at night. If I can't be because they all close at seven, guess what? I got an extra two hours to do uh, paperwork in my, um, in, in my hotel room and I, and I can get to bed a little bit quicker. So, it's good for me. It's great for the retail uh, salespeople and the delivery guys and the store owners. And it's good for the customers in the long run because you're going to have somebody who's not working 80 or 90 hours a week who, you know, hates their job waiting on you that is not giving you the kind of experience you should get. During COVID, especially in the early days when everyone's like, oh my gosh, you know, you look yeah. at the restaurant industry. Oh. And there yeah. were some restaurants that just, you, you'd see them even later in the year, they just shut down, right? And this on. is the way we've always done business. We can't do business now. We're shut down. And then there were some restaurants that were nice restaurants. When we were living in South Carolina, our favorite Italian restaurant, which was a high-end Italian restaurant, created an incredible little supply chain of their own drive-through with a loop and you'd go through and it was incredible customer service. It was wonderful. You got a great meal, the way they packaged it and all that. And they took care of their employees and they kind of did a little cycle of who's going to work the outside and things like that. Um, and, and those restaurants that, uh, you know, got creative and adapted were the ones that still made money and survived during COVID. Were there any really uh, cool or interesting 
kind of adaptive things that you saw from some of your retailers where you were like, wow, that was pretty cool for them to continue staying open? Um, quite a few of the retailers went to a, uh, open by appointment only. So there was only one customer allowed into the store at a time. Uh, they, as a general rule, all of my dealers did a great job of, of, uh, you know, of sanitizing everything, using masks, everything that they possibly could. Uh, that was recommended. And of course, you could have a whole debate and waste a whole show on the viability of that that whole thing. But uh, whatever the CDC guidelines were, they met or exceeded them. And uh, I saw a lot of creativity with restaurants, more so than with furniture stores. Furniture and mattress stores, by going to the appointment-only model, um, did a... Did, did a good thing for them. And, and, you know, they broke some of their own self-imposed rules. Um, if a, a customer knew they needed something, they would just deliver it, you know, instead of making them come in. A lot of stores have rules that, you know, you need to come into the store, blah, blah, blah. That, that whole thing has kind of changed. But what I really enjoyed it was one of my favorite restaurants over here in Rocky River, Joe's Deli. They had this whole thing. They set it up with cones. They had people that greeted people and said, hey, you're in line. You know what? You know, this gentleman or lady up here, they're going to take your order. And when you get to the end of this line, you're going to have your food. Bear with us. You know, we're just getting used to this. It'll go faster as time goes by. And they did just a fantastic job of, of, uh, of restructuring their business so that they could continue to do some business. And, you know, it was, it was admirable. Um, uh, some of the creativity with outdoor seating was very, was very, uh, it was creative and, and it was, um, I think that businesses in general got as creative as they could get. Um, and I think that there are some things that will stick with us. And one of the things that I think we all came away from is, you know what, at the end of the day, we're here to serve our customers and your customer dictates how they want to be served. And so, you know, it's up to us to find new and creative ways to serve our customers the way they want to be served. Um, so that's, that's, that would be my takeaway from it. I remember, um, my birthday's in April. So back in 2020, I had a birthday. We were still in whatever lockdown, you know, all that. Right. And the restaurants weren't open. And, and in Charleston, there's the best steakhouse I've ever been to Hall's Chop House. Mm. And they serve Allen Brothers steaks. It's incredible. And that was always anniversaries. We'd go there. The customer service was incredible. Yeah. Well, they had a thing where you could go and now you could go and get your steak cooked. But, you know, by the time you bring it home, even if it's 20 minutes, they would actually, so you could go and buy their raw steaks and they actually put online videos and gave you a special card on how to prepare it and cook it the way they did. 
Mm. We went and did that. So for my birthday, we went to a park. Of course, the park was closed with signs, don't go to the park. And we're like, yeah, fuck you. So we went into the park, you know, and, and did it and ran around and was like, coming to arrest us and our kids, right? And so that, that would have been the best birthday if I, if I ever got, if I got arrested on my birthday for violating a lockdown, that would have been it. That would have been the, the best birthday. <laughs> but then afterwards, we stopped by Hall's Chop House. You, we just, you pull up at the front door and you go in there and they had a table set up and we got the raw steak or whatever. Then I went and I, I got a cheaper bottle of wine than I would have it there. And then we went and got our favorite gelato at a different place and then came home, cooked it. It was one of the best steaks I've ever had. And I said to my wife, I said, you know what? Yeah, there's the ambiance of the restaurant, but I'm saving money. I'm having a damn good steak and I'm in my pajama pants with my family in my kitchen and I'm watching TV. Like I have my movie on, you know, so like you said, the, the customer dictates it. I think some things in some industries, especially will never go back because now customers are used to something different. Now that could be good or bad or just it's creative destruction. It happens, right? There's some things that are never going to come back. Sure. Um, in the early days of whatever we want to call the last two years, you know, there, no, there's kind of like what's going on. Like, what the heck is going on, right? And, they, and mm -hmm. for someone who deal, is in a retail industry, mm -hmm. what was it like in those early days? I mean, was it just kind of disbelief and then you rolled your sleeves up, went and, and, and you know, and what were you telling the retailers on counseling them? How were you counseling them to, like, survive? I mean, then it, it, we all thought it was going to be a two-week, right? It was 14 days to slow the spread. Now we're on... 14 years, but <laughs> well, what I've done my whole career, Kurt, is share best practices with mm. uh, between retailers. And, and so my retailers really led the way. Um, a lot of them just absolutely refused to shut down. They did not shut down. Mm. They went to a uh, by appointment only model. And uh, they would literally let one customer in and then lock the door. And there was a sign on the door that said, hey, please call for an appointment. Um, we can only have one customer in the store at a time. And um, so I started to share that information with, with, with retailers. I would say the vast majority of my retailers did not shut down. Um, very few high profile large retailers had to because they just have too big of a target on their on their backs uh, for enforcement. Mm -hmm. uh, but the little guys, pretty much all of them, they had a field day, and mm -hmm. most of my manufacturers found a way to stay open. Um, there were a couple that couldn't, but most of them did, and so. Business was very good, and I literally everything that I thought was going to happen did not happen. Hmm. And uh, business was beyond good; it was actually great and getting better. And I'm like, "Well, if this is shut down, let's just keep this going because it's working out great for me. Probably not for a lot of the restaurants. I mean, my heart was breaking." when I saw some restaurants that have been open 40, 50 years closed mm -hmm. down, um, that, that, that was heartbreaking to see. 
but uh, I, I didn't lose any retailers. Um, as a matter of fact, retail has been strong. There's a little dip in business uh, recently, but it's coming back strong now. So uh, the biggest uh, the biggest thing is is the supply chain right now, and more price increases coming. There's inflation in the, hmm. the overall economy, and uh, additional inflation being caused by uh, people that don't want to work and um, our, our customers having to, to pay higher wages. And, and, you know, I remember listening to Dan Kennedy, hmm. uh, I, one of his divorce, his, his divorces, he, he looked at it, he goes, I'm not paying that settlement. My customers are going to pay that. Hmm. So he wrote a few more sales letters than he would normally do. And his customers paid for the divorce settlement. And, you know, uh, retailers are the same way. They're, you know, they're not going to eat it. They're going to pass it on. They have to, because at the end of the day, they have landlords and they have overhead and they have to pay people and it has to come from somewhere. And so, Anybody that thinks there's a free lunch, need, they really need to think again because there, there isn't. Um, the, the, the price for the, the policies that have been enacted in response to COVID were all inflationary policies, all caused by the government, and everybody's paying the price now. But Pete, I was told that increased government spending would actually reduce inflation. I believe everything I'm told. I mean, yeah. I saw the president say it. I saw Jen Psaki or whatever her name is say it. So it yeah. must be true. I told my wife, I said, listen, I don't watch the news, but someone shared it on LinkedIn. And it just comes to the point where there, there's certain arguments that are made. And I don't do politics anymore. I, yeah. I think they're all idiots, right? Yeah. And they all say things that, you know, but there's certain things like increase government spending will reduce inflation. That just, if you believe that, um, I just feel really bad for you. Mm -hmm. That uh, you might not want to cross streets because yeah, you're the same the person. You're the same person that won't look before he or she crosses the street. So you may just want to stay in bed. Just stay in never bed. Get out. <laughs> just stay in bed. Yeah, there, there are. I mean, so yeah. Well, and, and, you know, something that you said, you know, Dan Kennedy, the great Dan Kennedy, and, and, and that he'll pass it along to his customers, you know, and, and that notion is a, is a, um, what inflation and taxes, right? Raise taxes on corporations. Well, who's going to pay? Sure. They're not sure. going to pay the it. consumer, the consumer pays. Yeah. And the, the and consumer, the consumer always pays like these guys, they want $15 an hour for flipping burgers. Okay. You'll have it, but guess what? When burgers get up to $10 a burger, nobody's going to buy burgers and or you will you will be replaced by a much more efficient mechanism called a robot. And we're already and seeing you, that. And you are making it possible. So you uh, you guys are eliminating your jobs. Well, listen, when I go buy toll booths, I'm like, why is there a person there? And if the per I would rather it just be a robot, especially if the person isn't even going to say please or thank you or smile. It's like I could program a computer to say please, thank you, and smile at me, have a nice day. 
I mean, but a robot doesn't vote. So if you give a robot a job, it doesn't count towards votes, which, you know, as, as someone who came up working politics in Illinois, I had a friend who worked at the Department of, Ed, uh, of uh, Transportation. And we were living in South Carolina at the time. We came in and you can tell, even if your eyes are closed, you're asleep. I, my wife was driving. I could tell we were in Illinois because all of a sudden the road got really bumpy and we started winding around because there's cones everywhere. And my wife's like, there's no work going on. Why are there cones? And our friend said, well, it's an election year. We're told to put out the cones so it makes it look like we're making progress and we're doing something, even though there was no work. So he's like, wow. we go and we put out the cones and we move them. And then, you know, and so that's why toll booth, that's why there's people in the toll booth because it's government jobs. And, you know, that's, hey, half the aisle will be proud of that and half the aisle will be disgusted by it, but it's the truth. And yeah. so, so passing along to customers. Yeah. Inflation, seven, eight percent. We're seeing that or we're seeing other things like uh, we went to the lake with my wife's family and my father-in-law said, look at this. And he pulled out a Stella, a can of Stella Artois. And he said, look at this. It's 11.2 ounces. It was 11.8 or 11.2. Whatever it was, it wasn't 12 ounce can. Now they did that. They didn't, it was the same price. Mm -hmm. They just took some ounces out of the can. Yeah. Over the course of a case though, especially if there's a bunch of people or if you're really getting lit, that adds up. Sure. And so, and so they can do that for a while until you just, the prices are so much inflation, so much you have zero beer in there, right? Or, or you just have no toilet paper on the roll or no bugles in the bag of bugles. But when we're talking 45, 50% price increases that quickly, I mean, that quickly over two years, even if it was over five years, 10 years, 50% is a lot. Yeah. How are, how is your industry dealing with absorbing it and the combo of absorption and passing it along to customers. How's that happening? Because at some point, I, I, there's probably a line at which customers will, they'll go to goodwill, right? Or they'll, they'll find some old remnant stuff on Amazon or something. I don't know. Yeah. You know, if you would have asked me where that line was, I probably wouldn't have wanted to guess, but we haven't hit it. Because I would have bet you anything that that w the price the pricing that we're charging for things right now would have stopped the business. I would have bet on that, and I would have mm. bet wrong. So I don't know where that line is. Um, hmm. Maybe ten years ago, I, I I thought I knew, but I would have been wrong. So. Hey there, freedom lovers. Kurt Mercadante here and wanted to let you know that today's episode, and in fact, the episodes all week long, are brought to you by the Rapport Mastery Complete Virtual Sales System that's been put together by my mentor and our freedom partner, Joe Peachy. In 2020, he was ranked the number one sales trainer in the world by global gurus, and you can get his complete virtual sales system for over 60% off right now. If you're serious about selling, about increasing your revenue, whether you're a new entrepreneur, a entrepreneur, or a seasoned business owner, go check the link in the show notes to get over 60% off of this virtual sales system from internationally acclaimed sales trainer, Joe Peachy. Now, what are you going to get with this? 
you get 10 courses designed to improve your sales skills, four bonus courses, that's a total of 14 courses, 53 sessions of interactive video content, a workbook to help you fast track your results. It's all virtual. The 14 courses include nine essential skills for sales success, a winning sales process, speaking your client's language, active listening, rapport mastery, powerful messaging, and 17 strategies for finding endless quality quality leads and so much more. It's the Rapport Mastery Complete Virtual Sales System. You can get it for over 60% off right now. Check the link in the show notes if you want to close more deals, book more appointments, recover lost revenue, take advantage of this offer, the Rapport Mastery Complete Virtual Sales System from internationally acclaimed sales trainer, Joe Peachy. Click the link in the show notes, take advantage of it today. I get the feeling, and I I wanna have high energy and positive energy, but it also somewhat boggles my mind of, of that line, right? You thought that line when it's hit the industry creators, but you're also seeing an industry that I assume is linked, right? Which is the housing industry and people moving like crazy during COVID, across COVID, people buying new homes, moving here. But I, I hear it in, um, even in some areas that aren't high growth areas where the, the, uh, but especially like here, Texas and Florida, where people are moving, these prices, it's like, what the heck? Like, I can't, I have a friend here who bought his house for about 500, we're in Sedona, Arizona, 500,000 the day before the day of the first lockdowns. Like, so not even two years ago. 500,000, it's worth 1.2 now. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess I would say is someone who comes in and moves, a lot of people are moving from California where the the price of housing has been up forever and that's what's inflating ours. I guess someone who does that comes in, gets it for 1.2 and if you're going to pay that much and not care, you don't care about a 50% increase in the beds, right? I guess if you have that much money, especially since you're paying a half million less than than California. But it also also is a clear sign on the other side of the boggle our mind it's it's a sign of abundance to mm-hmm. some degree because some there are people I talked to someone who said, "Well, don't increase your prices till we really see how the next six months eight months play out and I'm thinking there's money in the economy there's money in circulation we're seeing it in the housing industry. Right. You just said you haven't hit that that line yet. That should actually be a clear sign, not for people to go crazy, no. but the fact that there's this money, the, even though the government's printing some money, there's money in circulation that people have had. You know, it just didn't go away. It goes somewhere, right. you know? And right. and um, now that's not to say there's not going to be a correction. <laughs> there's going to be a correction. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So what do you, with supply chains now, what are, how are you urging your retailers to handle this process. I mean, if, if there's a 50% increase, is all that passed along or is it like, we'll take, we'll absorb 25, you absorb 25. Um, is it depend on the retailer? Um, 
No, universally, all retailers participated in the price increases. Uh, the big guys were not spared. They might have initially been spared. And, and listen, the, there's a reluctance in a competitive industry to raise prices. But at some point, an owner of a manufacturing concern has to look at his or her bottom line and go, I've got to get a price increase or I'm going to go out of business. And uh, so I think what has happened is um, our reluctance to give a price increase has completely gone away. Uh, we used to be scared that, you know, we we're going to lose business. Um, and I can tell you this, you know, I was looking for a competitive advantage. So I have on a spreadsheet every time my competitors went up, what they went up, I would get real happy when my competitors went up more and I went up less. But then on the next price increase, we'd go up more and they would go up less. And at the end of the day, at the end of a year, and then at the end of two years, I looked at it, they were all within two or 3% of each other. Hmm. So, I mean, it's just economics. It's yeah. just mathematics. Um, but I would say that if nothing else, our mindset should have been expanded, not contracted one bit. Uh, and that if we didn't believe in abundance before, which there's no reason not to, we should definitely believe in it now because I thought for sure when this thing happened, I go, well, Houses are paid. Everything's paid for. I'm good. I can wait this thing out. But I don't know about my buddies. So I'm praying for everybody and hoping that the ones that are not as well healed as I was uh, survive. And, and what do we all end up doing? We all end up doing extraordinarily well. So I've heard that. I mean, certainly in any two-year period in history, there's going to be people who don't do as well and people who do well. Yeah. I've probably talked to more people over the last two years who were doing really well and had mm -hmm. record years. Um, and I talked to a lot of, from the financial industry to, you know, relationship consultants, those types of things. But the interesting thing is, and this just shows you a fundamental, um, something that we have to work on as a conscious society is people apologize. I'm sorry to say this, but I did really well. I feel really bad about saying this, but I did really well. Why do you feel bad? Why do you feel bad? And that's, it, it's, it's the scarcity mindset that, it, Pete, if you got a, a, a slice of pizza and yours was bigger, it took away from me instead of knowing that we just make more pizzas. There's no, there's no one pizza. That's, yeah. the, that, that's, that's where it's fundamentally flawed. Well, listen, apologizing in general forget about apologizing because uh, you worked hard and you were blessed and, 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 you know, maybe somebody else who didn't work as hard wasn't as blessed. Right. Uh, and those things don't always work exactly the way we want to, certainly not in our expectation mindset sometimes, but I, I learned something and I, it was taught to me by uh, Sherry Lohman. And she, uh, she owns a furniture store, Lowman's Furniture. She said, Pete, please stop apologizing. She goes, I just got hit with 10 price increases today. 
Because you know what? None of the other reps apologize, and you shouldn't either. It's just the way it is right now, and you, you should not apologize for it. And I thought about that long and hard, and I said, yeah, I still feel bad. She goes, you had nothing to do with it. There's nothing for you to feel bad. So here it is, my customer who should be ripping me from one side to the other is supporting me and helping me to improve my mindset to understand what is really happening. Um, And it's across industries. It's not just our industry that went up. It's not just our industry that can't ship. Uh, She had a customer who was a roofer and the roofer finally got his shingles, but he had no nails to put the roof on with. Hmm. So it's every, it, it, it's across industries, it's in appliances, it's, it's a, everywhere, you know, and there are a lot of lessons uh, to be learned, but the most important one is this uh, scarcity mindset. It'll kill you in a relationship. It'll kill you in business. It, 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 it'll kill your soul. It'll kill everything. Um, and it's, um, there are scarcity pimps. Oh, I yeah. think, I think you talk about this. Oh yeah. I actually own the website. I, I'm, I'm considering what to do with it, but I, I, I want to be as offensive as possible when I do it, <laughs> but yeah, they pimp it out. And, yeah. and if you don't have a scarcity mindset, they'll infect you to ensure they'll, that they lower you to their level. They'll attempt to bring you down to a tribal level, um, which is sad and unfortunate that too many people fall for it because uh, that's not the way we were meant to live our lives, period. There were some, th- so you, you talked about some things in your industry that you're counseling them, that you've counseled them to do. You've talked about some things they did do. What are some things that, if if you were made czar tomorrow of the f- furniture and mattress industry, what's one thing that you would fix that you know is going to be half? Maybe it was exposed over the last two three years. Maybe it's being exposed by competitive online pressures, whatever. That you're like, we have to fix this quickly, or we're screwed when the next challenge comes our way. Yeah. I believe that fundamentally in our business, there are there is too much disinformation even within the business. Hmm. I've known um, salespeople and even executives with 10, 15, 20 years of experience that are completely ignorant of the facts of the products that they're selling. They hmm. fundamentally don't understand um the processes of how things are built. They don't understand the properties and what the real benefits are. And they fundamentally don't understand selling. And I'm like, how are you even still in this industry? And you fundamentally don't understand it. There's just too much bad information. Well, one of the best salespeople I ever met didn't understand the funnel fundamental differences between latex processes and he thought that they were actually characteristics and one was natural and one was one was uh, uh, um, 
Um, one was a natural latex and, and the other was synthetic. And I'm like, no, that's a process. And you can have synthetic, you can have natural, 100% of each, or a combination in any process, whether it's Dunlap continuous pour or tally process. So uh, there's a lot of ignorance in our industry, a, a lot. And it gets passed on from generation to generation as a fact, and it's wrong, and it needs to be corrected. And, uh, you know, it's, I've never, um, I've never been, um, it never ceases to amaze me of how much disinformation is out there. And, and I see it passed on as if it's gospel. And I'm like, oh my God, it's actually the opposite way. They just said it. And so it, 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 it brings you to, to, to tears sometimes. And it's just like unfortunate because if we within our industry can't, agree on what it is well how the heck's the consumer ever going to have a chance right yeah i mean you know one of the funniest things we ever did and i'll probably get sued for this <laughs> uh but we tore down a mattress and it was bed in a box mattress and their their whole sales pitch to the consumer was these greedy retailers with these huge markups and they you know they mark it up so much so we tore that down they were selling it for 5.99 it had $140 in cost in it they were selling it to the and they were saying that it was a $9.99 product and it wasn't. It was a $4.99 product, in my estimation. Uh, and they were selling it for $100 more with internet marketing and saying, don't buy from a greedy retailer. We're going to give you this great. So they were doing, they were making the exact lie true for them that they were accusing retailers of doing. And, and the reality is that $140 cost bad if we were lucky, we would sell it for 280 to a retailer. Most retailers I know would sell it for 560, but we don't always get that lucky. We probably would have really in a competitive industry sold it for 250 and our retailers, our average retailer would sell it for 499. So who's screwing who? Yeah. You yeah. know, it, it, it's it, it's bad comedy sometimes. Um, and it's really interesting when somebody talks about quality materials and then they don't use them. And it's like, I've got my hands on this foam. I know what this is. I just sent it out to a lab to confirm what it is. You're building crap and you're saying it's quality and you're accusing everybody else of making crap, but you're the one making the crap. <laughs> so I feel bad for consumers. I really do, especially when it comes to our industry. I mean, we, we need to do better. So if I was made czar, everybody would have to go to class and learn the facts and they would have to portray those facts in an honest way to our buy-in retail public so that they could trust us again, so that we would earn their trust because um, we're, we, we pay for the sins of some blatantly dishonest people, but we also pay for 
the sins of disinformation, uh, where there's not necessarily a black heart behind it. It's just you were taught the wrong thing and you don't know the truth. And now someone slaps you in the head with the truth. You're calling them a liar. It's like, why don't you? And this is exactly what I said. I said, why don't you really research this as if you were going to do a paper for your senior thesis and you come back to me and you tell me that it's not true. Two weeks later, the dude comes back to me, he goes, I cannot believe that I have been lying to people for all these years. I feel so dirty. I said, you shouldn't feel dirty. You're an honest person. And you were told you made a, one fundamentally bad assumption. And the assumption is that everything you were told by one person was true. I've never been, I've always been a bit of a skeptic. I never believed anything anybody said to me. I always would sneak around and talk to the production guys and go, hey, the sales guys are saying this. Is it true? Tell me, tell me what's the truth here. And I'd always get the other side of the story. And I always um, felt like that natural skepticism and curiosity that, that I had served me well over my 40 year career. And I think a little skepticism and a, a little digging is always good for us, no matter what business we're in or, or what we're doing. You mentioned stuff that goes into the products and cutting yeah. them open, tearing them down. Yeah. Uh, taking that back to supply chains a bit. Yeah. And you mentioned the imports. Yeah. Is there, um, and I'm ignorant of where, and I can only imagine, it depends, right? There's the metal parts come from one place, the wood parts, they're fake wood, whatever it is, and depending on the bed, right? Yeah. Is there a breakdown internationally, no matter where the goods are coming from? Or is it... Is there a glaring difference? I mean, I, my brother's in the corrugated box industry and people were saying, there's a corrugated box shortage. He said, no, there's not. There was a glue shortage coming in through the Gulf of Mexico. You mentioned nails. You know, you go to the store now, there's a coin shortage. How is there a coin shortage? You know, it's like, what? And part of me is like, are you making this up? There's a bag shortage. There's this or that. <laughs> are you seeing it, all the various components that are imported, it doesn't matter where it's coming from? there's a supply chain issue or is it, is there a glaring area or areas? Well, I think you need to, to do a thorough research on who owns the containers and that'll tell you a lot. So do you know who owns most of the containers? Does it happen to be the Chinese communist party? Yes. Yeah. And probably the ports as well, right? Some they, of the ports, Africa and, they control most of that. Not all of it, but more of it, more of that than we should ever be comfortable with. Hmm. Shame on us. We let we put ourselves in this position. Now, what are we gonna do to extract ourselves from it? It's probably not gonna be painless, but I'd rather just have a little bit more pain right now and be free of the shackles that we uh, imposed on ourselves. Do you see a lot of that um, resulting in uh, an increase in uh, supply uh, supply chains within our borders? So, an increasing amount of products being manufactured here, or has that has that ship to, to 
no pun intended, has that ship sailed? Meaning, do you think there'll be a reaction to the last two years of supply chain breakdowns and things coming in on ships where now you're going to see, I mean, you know, Tim Cook is now making some computers here, right? Now, I think he did that after some threats and other things. But right. Tesla is making a lot of their things here. Yeah. Do you see that in your industry where, you mentioned textiles. I mean, South Carolina was a was a a case study that we always used when I worked in, in like the U S chamber of commerce as a, their textile industry went away, but yeah. they replaced it with aerospace and, and right. those types of things. Um, right. Do you see some of these things coming back? Yeah, we have seen some domestic um, the supply, uh, some domestic manufacturers uh, increase their capabilities here. Uh, and 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 we also have uh, another disturbing development, which mm. I don't understand why it doesn't bother people. Why why can an American not own a business in China, but a Chinese person can own a business in the United States? Why? Mm. Why? Now, I know why. It has a lot to do with. Uh, our politicians not being savvy enough to understand fundamental economics. I mean, and the other side to that is probably just flat out bribery because a lot of the factories that are being built here are being built by the Chinese. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Does, does not warm my heart one bit. Yeah. It's it, someone was telling me once that uh, when we lived in South Carolina, there was a good chunk not going to put the percentage. I think it was a very large chunk of all the golf courses in Myrtle Beach were owned by. And people say, "Well, those are those are privately owned." They don't understand that there are, according to the whatever they the charter, the the communist charter or the whatever they call it, the constitution over there, there is no private. Like that word doesn't exist. Right. right a right. company is an adjunct of the party, um, and 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 then I know some people who have who have used the, uh, I can't remember which visas they are, but to fund their businesses here by, uh, with investments from Chinese people who want to come here and business people who want to come here as well. So, yeah, you know, I don't know what goes on there, but there was, there was an interesting story I remember. And, uh, I don't know if this guy's still alive, but he had a, he had an intermediary in China who dealt with the finances, who had all the money was supposed to get it to this guy here spent the money. And apparently at one point, the story was a lot of angry people in China surrounded this guy's office. And over there, I think you're, if they, if they just take him out and kill him, you do. <laughs> but they, yeah. they were pretty sure that was going to happen. Yeah. Do you think if the last two years, if COVID hadn't happened, that we would still be having the supply chain and, uh, um, well, maybe, maybe not inflation to that point, although, you know, hey, 20, the difference between 22 trillion and 33 trillion, you know, or whatever we are now over the last two years. But do you think the supply chain issues would happen? Uh, well, I guess there's three parts here. Do you think they would have happened? No. Do you think they would have happened uh, and COVID provided a, 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 an interesting way to blame supply chain issues on something else? No. Uh, or do you think it just wouldn't have happened at all? No. Would not have happened, period. Interesting. Because basically what you did is you said to people, 
you can't leave your house unless you're going out for this, that, or the other. You basically got to stay at home. People are staying at home. They're realizing my mattress sucks. My furniture sucks. Oh, and here's a bunch of money to stay at home. So now you have money to spend. So it was an artificial situation that created, you know, a lot of prosperity for certain industries, but uh, fleeting. And uh, then because you're paying people for not working, people don't want to work. Yeah. I mean, uh, now you've got what's that? What's exasperating everything, Kurt, is the fact that people won't work. They won't show up for work. When they do, they're demanding and they're arrogant and they're spoiled, petulant children that we would never put up with in a million years in any other scenario. And uh, it's just, it's very pathetic and sad. Hmm. Well, in the few minutes we have left, I got to ask you questions not related to your industry at all. Good. Well, maybe in the early days. Of it. What's that? <laughs> I'm tired of it. <laughs> in the early days, maybe it helped, right? I don't know if you're working in the storeroom. Powerlifting. You got that statue behind you. Louis Sear, yeah. Louis Sear. I remember in the in the old days, I did the ultimate warrior powerlifting competition when I was in high school. Um, and thanks to powerlifting, uh, my lower back is, I'm probably about an inch and a half shorter than I would be because uh, I used to muscle up squats with my back instead of my legs. You know, oh, you yeah. in the football, in the, you know, you, everyone would get pumped up and you're like, I'm going to beat them. And so you just, you do like a, one of those, like a 90 yeah. degree and it's like, yeah, it's still deadlift squat bench what are your what are your tops what what were you, at your peak at your prime uh 870 on the squat wow bench was 705 and the deadlift was 680 what was your favorite lift deadlift deadlift I'll tell you why because i was a balanced lifter mm. um and nobody, I was so good in the squat and the bench that if anybody was just a great bencher and squatter, they could never hang with me on the deadlift. Hmm. So sometimes people have things, uh, you know, I remember one of the, after a competition, we basically put our arms out and this guy who could bench the same as me his arm literally was like seven, eight inches shorter than mine. But that, that advantage that he had in the bench went away on the deadlift because mm. that meant he had to squat all the way down to get yeah. that bar. And I was starting in a much closer to finish position than him because my arms were, were long for a power lifter. Uh, not exceptionally long, but longer on the longer side. Um, and the other thing that I liked about the deadlift is it was, you know, squat is, there's some technique. Um, bench, there's a lot of technique. I was really considered, 
a great technician. And I spent a lot of time on it. Uh, it was almost like a magic trick with certain things that you have to do in a certain sequence to make the lift happen a certain way. Deadlift, it's just, do you have do you have the testicular fortitude to lift that weight or not? I mean, there's there's no special suit that you can put on that will help you lift more weight. Uh, some guys did. I I took all my equipment off and I always uh, deadlifted in just a singlet. And I used to laugh at my competitors. I'm like, dude, you're exhausting yourself. Putting your you got three guys pushing and pulling on you. Your face is turning purple to put that damn suit on. And it's not going to give you one pound more. I'm going to walk up to this bar and I'm going to outpull you and there's nothing you can do about it. So that was my attitude uh, with the deadlift. It was just like, I didn't care what the score was. I knew I could put whatever I needed to do, put on that, that deadlift and make it. You know, some of these guys, I deadlifted more than 100 pounds than, than, than them. So I wasn't. It wasn't close. I, yeah. Most of the time when I won a meet, I was winning by four or 500 pounds. Wow. Close meet would be 100 pounds. So I was lucky. I, you know, my joke was I was a full-time power lifter and a part-time mattress salesman. <laughs> it was true. I was very lucky. I had this like little window of five years where my business was so developed so well that I literally could run my business without having to do too, too awful much. And it drove my competitors crazy. One of my competitors used to say, well, how often do you see Pete? Oh, I never see Pete. Well, why don't you buy from me? He goes, well, I talk to him every day. Why would I, why do I need to see Pete? I don't need to see Pete. And it, it drove him so crazy. He eventually became my business partner. He wanted to know what I was doing. He could never take an account from me, even when he thought he found an Achilles heel. He couldn't take it from me because I compensated in other ways for it. I just used the phone more and used email more. But that's not a long-term recipe for success. That was just uh, me not having enough money for a red convertible, Kurt, and just curious as to how much weight I could lift. <laughs> what's, the, uh, what's the highest pinnacle of an award that you won? I won um, several world championships, several national championships. It's 26 national and world records. But the ones that meant the most to me, I think three times I won a lifter of the meet. I didn't even know there was a lifter of the meet award, like best lifter across all categories. I didn't even know until I won one. Uh, and I'm like, uh, and they called my name and I'm like, what did I call my name for? Uh, dude, you just won the best lifter for the meat award across every age group and platform. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. And then, uh, so, so that meant more to me than the, the world titles or the national titles because they're so segmented, right? It was like, you're lifting an amateur, which means it's drug tested. There's, there's, you know, I'm not lifting against a bunch of guys doing growth hormone and anabolic steroids. And it was specific to my age group. But when you won the best lifter meet, you're going across all platforms and age groups. So that's what meant the most to me anyway. So final question is powerlifting, 
the lessons you learned from attaining the highest levels of powerlifting. Yeah. What of those lessons did you bring over to business? Yeah. Uh, specialized coaching. Hmm. Um, I would drive eight hours to to lift with uh, Bill Crawford, my bench press co- coach. Um, specialized coaching, upgrading your coaching. After I bounced 600 pounds off my neck on a bench press, I decided I needed a better team and better coaches around me. I um, was lucky that I didn't get hurt really bad on that. Um, dedication, time, consistency, paying attention to detail, um, surrounding yourself with a good team and hiring the best coaches that you can afford or and or find probably be the biggest lessons. Um, and there's something to be said. I remember Bob Sherman told me many years ago when I worked for CERTA, and, and Bob's one of the smartest guys in the industry. And he said, Pete, you know, I worry about you sometimes. You know, you work so hard. He goes, you don't have to work as hard as you're working. He goes, I just want you to work consistently. I just want you to just focus on doing a, a few things every day really well, leave them plenty of time to do other things, enjoy your family, and you don't have to be a workaholic. You don't have to work 80 hours a week to be successful. You can work 40 to 50, 60 hours a week and be super successful as long as you're doing the right things. So being efficient and you know you call you call it flow but having alignment with your vision and consistency with your efforts create flow and uh, finding your flow is is a huge part of what I learned in powerlifting um, you know it's so funny from my first to my last meet um, my first meet, I didn't even know what the rules were. So I would say, lesson number one, learn the rules. <laughs> I didn't know that you couldn't go back down. I, I only knew that I call out a weight. I, I got three tries to lift a weight. And I thought I could go up or down, but you can't. You can only go up. So... <laughs> It was uh, it was a funny experience. I, I I missed my first two lifts. I made it on the third lift. It was a national record, and it was enough to beat the next closest guy. And the guy's looking at me, and he's just shaking his head. He's like, "I can't believe this dude just beat me," because I've always been stronger than I look, and it's uh, kind of a blessing and a curse at the same time. But. Yeah, the lessons that, that I, 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 there was a lot of lessons in powerlifting uh, that directly correspond to selling and or business. Um, some of the biggest mistakes that I see business owners make is they, they can't put their egos down enough to ask for help, mm. right? And what you learn very quickly in a sport like powerlifting is there's an objective measurement. Either you lift the weight or you don't lift the weight. If you don't lift the weight, there's no one to blame but yourself. Right. Right. 
And so now you have to go back and you have to look at your preparation, right? You have to look at your technique. Could your technique get better? Could you eat cleaner? Could you get more sleep? What are the things that would contribute to a better performance? So those are the lessons I would say. Well, Pete, Primo, it's been a pleasure. I've been on your show a couple of times. It's been yeah. a pleasure to reverse. And yeah. I finally got, we were supposed to do this a while ago, but my internet has sucked. And so I'm so happy we're, we're able to have you on the show. We'll have to have you come back another time and go, th- we're going to go through all 101 uh, tips from your book. <laughs> but I love the book. We're going to link to that in the show notes. Pete, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Kurt. Have a great day. Thanks Thank for you. all you do. Appreciate you.